Welcome to the Breath Magazine podcast. Learn more about Breath Magazine and sign up for our newsletter to receive the latest news and updates at our website, breathmagazine.com. And now for today's episode. If you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is going to be a teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. Actually, a teaching on a particular gift of the Spirit, but by going through this one, you'll gain a whole lot of understanding about the gifts overall and how they operate. Now let's start with um, verse 4 in chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, charismaton in the Greek, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, should be workings, plural, But it is the same God who inspires or who works them all in every one. What Paul is saying here is that there are gifts of the Spirit, and there are a variety of gifts, a variety of ways that they exude service, and a variety of ways that they are manifested in the body of Christ. And I say in the body of Christ now, we'll see manifested in the Old Testament, manifested in the Gospels, and manifested in the New Testament or, you know, after Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost. Now let's read on. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice that Paul says common good. The manifestation of the Spirit is not just intended for a personal benefit. Now we see that in the Gospels. We don't see people or we don't see manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit occurring in some cave or some kind of closed room or something like that where it just inures to the benefit of the person being healed or the person who receives the word of knowledge or that kind of thing. Paul says it's for the common good, meaning the body of Christ. The message of the gospel. That's why we have manifestations of the Spirit, or that's where they occur. Now, verse 8, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance or word of wisdom. That's one. And to another, the utterance or word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. Those two things are different. But we're not going to focus on those today. Let's go to verse 9. To another faith by the same Spirit, and that's the one that we're focusing on today. To another faith by the same Spirit. Now, if you know anything about the Word at all, you know that everything is by faith. We preach the Word of faith. God demands faith. Faith is all over the Bible. But that's not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here. Here he's talking about a specific manifestation that he calls faith to kind of kind of as an overall general definition of what this manifestation is all about. Now the interesting thing here is he doesn't define the gift of faith. In fact, he doesn't define any of the other gifts. He really expects the Corinthian Christians to know what they are. But being in the 21st century today, a lot of Christians don't understand what the gifts are, what their purpose is, what they do, and hence, that's why we're teaching on it today. Now, if you go through the Word and you you read it the right way, you get a gist of what the gift of faith is all about. Well, I'm going to reverse engineer it. I'm going to give you the definition, and then we're going to go through some episodes in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, which bear bear that definition out. So, the gift of faith can be defined as faith imparted by the Spirit of God for protection in times of danger. It's got another kind of manifestation to it or a nuance, and it's for divine protection provision. And we see that time and time again in the Old Testament. Whether it's manna from heaven, that was a that was a gift of the Spirit, actually. Whether it was um, the quail, uh, different episodes in the Old Testament about that. 
Um, and then you it may include the ability to impart blessing. And we see that mostly, again, in the Old Testament when the patriarchs prophesy over their sons before they pass away, before the patriarchs pass away. But what we're going to focus on today is faith imparted by the Spirit for protection in times of danger. So let's leave 1 Corinthians and let's go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. Now, this is a famous episode. And I could probably summarize the episode for you, but I always think that it's better just to go ahead and read the word and re-familiarize yourself with the story or with the account. So I'm going to start reading from uh, verse 6. So the president and satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict or prohibition that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions." Now, you can see right here from these two verses that these counselors and governors and prefects and satraps are setting a trap for somebody. They're coming to the king and they're saying, hey, king, enter into a prohibition where nobody can pray to anyone but you for 30 days. I mean, why 30 days? You know, so you know it's a setup. Let's read on. Now, O king, establish the, let's say, prohibition and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And what happens in verse 9? Therefore, King Darius signed the document and prohibition. Now, verse 10, it goes to Daniel. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Now, when I read this again, I kind of got a chuckle out of it because Daniel's up on the second floor. So how in the world did they find out that he was praying and seeking mercy from God? You know, first thing that comes to mind is they had a drone. <laughs> but we know they didn't have drones back then. So anyway, you know that they're spying on him, that he is, he is the object of their conspiracy. So, verse 12, Then they approached the king and said concerning the prohibition, O king, did you not sign a prohibition that anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? And the king answered, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then... And then comes a response. Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the prohibition you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel. Until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. You know, the king here, to his credit, says, man, I've been, <laughs> I've been lied to, man, you know? I don't know if he was a personal friend of Daniel or not, but he saw right away what the setup was. And he did everything he could to save Daniel, but the thing is, it couldn't be changed. Even the king couldn't change his own charge, which we find out from verse 15. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no prohibition or ordinance that the king establishes 
can be changed. So the king was stuck, and so was Daniel. So the king gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So Daniel was in the lion's den with a, with a stone over the mouth. He's not getting out, and there's nothing that the king can do. Verse 19, then at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O oh, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully served, been able to deliver you from the lions? You know, you step back from that and you think, boy, the king's pretty hopeful about this, you know, because here he's yelling into the den of the lions, hey, Daniel, you know, has your God been able to deliver you? <laughs> In verse 21, he hears, O king, Live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now notice verse 24. The king gave a command and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So, you know, verse 24 puts, puts to rest any kind of argument that the lions just weren't hungry, weren't ferocious, or something like that. So here we have, this is kind of a longer account, but here we have a manifestation of the gift of faith. Daniel didn't do anything. He didn't perform some kind of miracle. He didn't call down, you know, fire from heaven or anything like that. He was thrown into the lion's den, and it was a manifestation of the spirit that closed the lion's mouth that offered him divine protection. Now, Daniel does say that, you know, um, that God's angel closed, closed the, the lion's mouths. We don't know here whether he's just kind of saying that, um, you know, generally, or whether there was also a manifestation of an angel before him where the angel actually closed the lion's mouth. But whether it was or wasn't, uh, overall, it's a manifestation of the gift of faith, the protection of what we could say of the believer from danger. Now, let's look at another um, Old Testament account, and this is, um, well, you go back a little bit in Daniel. It's the three Hebrew kids, or what we call the three Hebrew kids. Kind of a longer account, but again, let's read it because it's always good to put ourselves in remembrance of what the story actually says. Daniel 3, verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree, here we have a decree again, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, 
harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue, and whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. You know, it's kind of the same thing as Daniel that we just read. You know, it's another kind of setup. A true setup, but a setup nonetheless. Now, they say in verse 12, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Well, a little bit different from King Darius, Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage, and he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in, and they're brought in. And he says to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the music playing, to fall down and worship the statue that I've made, well, that's well and good. But if you don't worship, I'll throw you into the furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? You know, he's pretty sure of himself, said, hey, I'm going to throw you into a furnace, and there's not going to be anybody to save you. So what is it? Are you going to fall down and worship me, or, or are you going to take the furnace? And in verse 16, they tell him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. So they drew a line in the sand. No, we're not going to worship you. We're not going to fall down at your statue. If our God delivers us, fantastic. If not, we're still not going to worship you. So Nebuchadnezzar, what's he do? He orders the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered that some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace a blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace. Actually, the Bible says, and they were thrown into the furnace a blazing fire. It's almost kind of like a movie. Because the king's command was urgent and the fire was so hot, the raging flames killed the men who lifted the three kids. So, you know, they, they heat up the furnace so hot that the soldiers bringing the three kids into the furnace, they all die. They die from the heat. But the three men fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. So, you know, you have this picture of the soldiers throwing the three in, but as they're throwing them in, they die of heat stroke because of the fire. It's so hot. Daniel 3.24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men we threw bound into the fire? And they said, yeah, true, O king. He replied, but I see four. Walking, four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. I think the King James says, uh, the appearance of the Son of Man. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out of there. So he kind of turns, he turns his tune some and says, well, you're servants of the Most High God, but come on out. So they came out. And everybody gathers around them, and they saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. 
these guys were totally clean. Totally clean. You know, so you have the picture of this huge furnace where you have these dead soldiers all around, and the three Hebrew kids walk out of there without not even the smell of fire on them. So what happened? This is a manifestation of the spirit of faith. You don't see that they did anything. I mean, they're bound and they're thrown into the furnace. Well, they didn't, they didn't call down ice. They didn't put out the fire. They didn't, do any, they didn't do anything. They walked around in the fire. How? It was a manifestation of the gift of faith. Divine protection for the believer. Okay, now we have those two episodes, those two accounts. Let's go over to the New Testament. Turn over to Acts 5. Now, the accounts in Acts are a little bit shorter than the Old Testament. But we see the same kind of thing happening. 517. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is, the part of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the common prison. So you see that the high priest and the Sadducees take the apostles and throw them in prison. Verse 19, But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And then they heard this, and they entered the temple at daybreak and taught. So you see this is a lot shorter account, but it's the same thing. They're thrown into prison, but they are, they are given divine protection in that they're taken out of the prison, same as the three Hebrew kids. You know, here the manifestation included an angel of the Lord opening the prison doors, but it's the same manifestation of, of the gift of faith, divine protection for the believer. Then turn over to Acts 12. We see the same kind of thing happening, but this is with just the Apostle Peter. Verse 4, and when he, meaning Herod, had seized him, meaning Peter, he put him in prison and delivered to him, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, the funny thing here is that Herod, Herod probably knew of this prior incident in Acts 5. You know, he's like, okay, I'm not going to let that happen again. You know, uh, somehow the prison door was kind of jiggled or something like that. Something wasn't done. So I am having four squads of soldiers guard this one apostle, Peter. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, verse 6. That very night when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door Before the door were guarding the prison. Now, verse 6, you know, get this picture. Peter is sleeping in between two guards, two soldiers, and he's bound with chains, and there are sentries at the door. So Herod is making sure that Peter's not going anywhere, you know? I mean, there's, no, there's not going to be any question in the morning in Herod's mind of where Peter is, who he's with, and who's got power over him. But, verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. You know, <laughs> it's kind of a, it's almost a funny scene when an angel appears. And, you know, Peter is kind of, he's probably groggy from sleep. And the angel says, hey, come on, get dressed, put on your shoes. Come on, we're, we're out of here. 
And the angel says to him, wrap your mantle around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Peter thought he was seeing a vision as he was sleeping, but this was the real deal. Verse 10, when they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and immediately the angel left him. That was the end of the manifestation of the gift of the spirits. Verse 11, and Peter came to himself and said, Well, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You know, the thing is, Peter finds himself standing in the middle of a street alone. And he comes to himself and says, Holy cow, yeah, now I'm sure that the Lord sent his angel because I'm standing here in the street and I'm not in prison. This manifestation here involved the appearance of an angel, but the main manifestation is, um, which a manifestation of an angel gets into discerning of spirits, but the main gift of the spirit here is the gift of faith, protection for the believer, divine protection for the believer. Notice that P- Peter wasn't doing anything. He was sleeping when the angel appeared. So this is a manifestation. It, it didn't involve, well, let me put it this way. It didn't involve Peter's faith at all because Peter was asleep. And in fact, Peter thought he was seeing a vision. And that's one thing about the gifts of the Spirit. They operate independently of a person's faith. Now, they operate in and through the church and in and through faithful believers but Peter didn't enter into the prison with the, with the expectation, with the promise, let's say promise, that he was going to be delivered out of the prison cell. This was a manifestation of the gift of the Spirit. And when you go back to Paul's definition, there's a variety of gifts, there's a, a variety of operations, and there's a variety of manifestations. Now, Here's the interesting thing about the gifts of the Spirit, or one thing that that preachers overlook all over the place, and that is the gifts of the Spirit operated in Jesus' ministry. Now think about this a minute. The, The conventional line in preaching is that Jesus performed all his miracles and signs be to show his divinity. You know, uh, when you back up, when you step back and you you think about it a minute, the storyline is this, that after so many years after Malachi prophesied about the Lord coming, you know, a voice in the wilderness, 400 years after that, Jesus decides to parachute into earth, be born of a virgin, He waits 30 years, and then he starts doing all kinds of, you know, lightning actions to show his divinity, and then he tells everybody, well, I'm going to die. Well, that's not the gospel, and that's not how things worked in the gospel. Jesus appeared as a man. He was a Jewish prophet who happened to prophesy about himself. He, He was a Jewish prophet who... His message was, God is going to save his people. And then the next line was, he's going to save his people through me. All the other prophets before was, their line was, God's going to save his people. But then Jesus comes and says, God's going to save his people. But he has another line says, and he's going to save them through me. Now, let me go through some scriptures for you to kind of set that, um, well, to establish Jesus's humanity. Because we hear all the time that he is the God-man, the God-man, the God-man. He was divine. Well, sure, he's the second person of the Godhead, but Paul says he emptied himself. 
John writes that he became flesh, which means he became a man. Now, let me just go through some scriptures. Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Two verses down, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through who or through whom? The one man, Jesus Christ. The one man, Jesus Christ. First, First Timothy 2.5 for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Hebrews 2, 8 and 9. Subjecting all things under, under his feet. No, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do yet see everything in subjection to them. Verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by... The grace of God, or other translations, um, separated from God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9 are a little bit more um, ambiguous, you might say, than the other verses, but the point is that he was made lower than the angels. And the writer of Hebrews making the point that he, was, he became a man. And then Hebrews 2.17, the same writer. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest towards God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews basically says, hey, this Jesus, he had to become like his brothers, like men in every respect. So even though he's the second person of the Godhead, he became a man. A man. Why is this important in this teaching? It's important to understand the gifts of the Spirit and how they operate. Because they don't operate through some kind of divine man, some kind of divine person, they operate through men. We see, we see that with Daniel. We see that through, through, with the three Hebrew kids. And in fact, what's interesting is that, you know, the preachers who say that Jesus did all these miracles, um, you know, during his earthly ministry to show his divinity, well, you go back to those Old Testament stories and you've you got to ask these preachers, what, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego divine too? Was Daniel divine too? Because tell you what, those kings couldn't kill him. I mean, you know, you, you set out the fiery furnace and you throw the guys in there and they come walking out and they're not even singed. And, you, and you're telling me they're not divine, but then Jesus is because he performs some miracles. Something tells me you got it wrong, preacher. And that's what we're trying to point out here in this episode that Jesus operated as a man in his earthly ministry. Listen to these two verses. These are from John, John 5, 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. Listen to the import of that scripture. The Son can do nothing of His own accord. Nothing. And that includes all the signs and the miracles and everything else that you see in His ministry, 
He says, I can't do anything on my own. I can only do what I see the Father doing. And what's that? That's the gifts of the Spirit. That's the anointing. Why could he not do anything of his own accord? Because he became a man. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own authority. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can do nothing of my own authority, nothing of my own power. Now, you go to Mark 6, 5, and you see something really striking there. Mark reports, Jesus goes to his hometown. And you know, when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, everybody looks at each other and says, hey, wait, didn't he grow up with us? Wasn't he the carpenter's son? Didn't our daughters play with him? I mean, what's so special about him? You know? And the thing is, they didn't receive his message. And in Mark 6, 5, it says, and he could do no mighty work there. So, you know, this idea that, that Jesus was doing uh, signs and wonders to show his divinity, well, he really failed at that in Nazareth, if you take the Bible for what it says, because there he could do no mighty work except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. So, you know, if he's, if he's in his earthly ministry going around saying, hey, look at me, I'm divine, you know, look, I healed him and I did this. And, but then he comes to Nazareth and he's like, well, wait a minute, this isn't working all that well. I can't do that much. My superhero divine powers aren't working. Well, that's a pretty bad testimony if he's trying to show his divinity. But it's not if we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. If he is operating as a man, as a prophet, who is endowed by the Spirit and the gifts are operating through him, well, then it just makes perfect sense. So the point is, or the point that I'm making here is, the gifts of the Spirit, and we're going to get to it in a minute, the gifts of the Spirit are there for the common good, what? For the message of the gospel. And God endows men or manifests these gifts of the Spirit for the benefit of the common good, which is the message of the gospel and the body of Christ. And we see that in Jesus' ministry. What God was doing through Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry was adding his own testimony to Jesus's message of salvation. It's a cool thing. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to know? It's important to know because you start to see how the gifts of the Spirit operate. They didn't die out with Jesus. They didn't die out with certain apostles who had some kind of divine favor. No. The gifts of the Spirit are in operation in the body of Christ today. God hasn't changed the way he does things. Now, one thing about Jesus, you see it in John. John says that he was given the Spirit without measure. And so when you have a man given the Spirit without measure, which Jesus is the only man that that, with that testimony, you see, you see quite a lot of things happening. I mean, you see grand miracles happening, outstanding miracles happening. But then you also come back to Nazareth and you see that he couldn't do it, uh, any mighty work there. Now, the preachers today, or how the gifts work today, is no one has the Spirit without measure. But men are endowed with the Spirit with some measure, some more than others. And that's why you see a difference between different preachers. Uh, you know, the Pentecostal preachers are the ones who believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and so you see the manifestations with them. I, I know of a preacher who had just a sixth-grade education. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't very book smart. He wasn't actually very Bible smart. 
But boy, he had a strong anointing on him like you have never seen before. He had gifts happening like you've never seen before. And that's because he was endowed with a distribution of the Spirit, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Now, I said that Jesus was a prophet. He not only was a man, but he was a prophet of Israel. And let me give you a couple scriptures to follow that up with. Um, Remember the story of the Canaanite woman, Matthew 15. Let me read it to you. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman. Now, this woman's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. A Canaanite woman from the region came and cried out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed of a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this this confounded me for a long time because I really didn't understand Jesus' mission in his earthly ministry. You know, early on in my Christian life, I had heard the preaching that You know, Jesus basically parachuted in and demonstrated that he was divine. But here's a woman who comes to him and says, have mercy on me. My daughter has a demon. And he basically just shuts her out. And not only him, but his disciples come to him and say, get rid of her. Well, what is that? What is that all about? You understand it when... You understand that he's a prophet sent to Israel. She's a Gentile. His ministry is to Israel. It's not to the Gentiles. Now his death, burial, and resurrection will bring the Gentiles in. But as he's walking the streets of Jerusalem, and as he's walking the streets of Galilee and all the other Jewish cities and villages, he is a prophet to the Jews. Why is that important with the gifts of the Spirit? Because once you understand the context of how they operate and how they work, you don't have a problem with them. You know, you understand that certain men are endowed with certain distributions of the Holy Ghost, and they are more apt to operate in the gifts of the Spirit than other people are. I mean, that's just the way it works. Now, let let me show you a couple accounts of Jesus where you understand the gift of faith operating in him in his ministry. It's one thing I meant to get to also. Turn over to Luke 4. So what we've gone through, just to kind of sum up for a minute, It's we've seen that there are gifts of the Spirit, and one is uh, the gift of faith. And the gift of faith is divine protection. And we went through Daniel and the three Hebrew kids in the Old Testament, and we saw that that gift of the Spirit manifested in the Old Covenant. Then we also went to the book of Acts, and we see that it was manifested with the apostles. You know, you can say the New Testament church. Here I want you to see how it's manifested in Jesus' own ministry. Now Luke 4, um, let's start with verse 28, because I'm kind of going long today. Jesus, uh, and let me just give you some background. Like I said, Jesus came to Nazareth, and, and the people of Nazareth did not accept his message because he basically said, I'm the Messiah, but the message is going to the Gentiles. He's talking about the future. And they became enraged at him. Now look at verse 28. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, 
led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. Now, notice this. The, this is his own, his own home folks, the, the people he grew up with. They, they become so enraged at him, they, they take him, and they take him to the top of a hill, and they're going to throw him off to kill him. And what happens? Verse 30, But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. He passed through the midst of them and went on his way. What happened there? A manifestation of the gift of faith. Now think about this a minute. If he was, if he was exercising his divine prerogative, so to speak, in his earthly ministry, you know, Jesus never would have let them manhandle him all the way up to the top of a hill. You know, I mean... They, they would have just fallen out by the power of the Spirit or something before they even got that far. But the manifestation occurred at the top of the hill when he was in danger. And what happened? Here comes the gift of faith, and he's able to pass through their midst without any harm whatsoever. Go over to John chapter 8 because I want here's another instance and it, this is a short account but it makes the point okay verse 58 Jesus said to them and he's talking to the Jews very truly I say to you before Abraham was I am well these guys got enraged at him too I mean he wasn't a soft-spoken preacher they were furious at, at him all the time. And so what's it say? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, how could he do that? I mean, did he have some kind of invisibility cloak with him? No. Did he, did he say, well, he just said that he was, uh, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. But he, did, did he lay him out with some kind of like divine breath or some kind of force field or something? No, this was a manifestation of the gift of faith. Where John writes, he hid himself and went out of the temple. Somehow the Jews couldn't see him. But it wasn't Jesus doing it, it was God adding to the testimony. Now, let me show you this. Uh, go over to Hebrews 2.4. And I'll try to wrap it up here. Let's start with verse 3. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is the, the writer of Hebrews arguing about Jesus and the new redemptive plan. It was declared at first through the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him. Verse 4. Notice this. While God added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts. Now, the Greek word there is distributions. It's not charismatone. It's another Greek word that means distributions of the Holy Ghost distributed according to his will. Now notice what the writer says here. While God added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles. That's a summing up of the gifts of the Spirit. God's adding his testimony. It's not that you have Jesus and a, and a few numbered apostles who are walking in some kind of divinity. It is God adding his testimony to their message. And when you go back to Paul's definition, you know, the gifts of the Spirit are distributed as the Lord wills. You can't conjure them up. You can't, um, you can't pray for them, really. It is 
It is God adding testimony to the message. And, you know, that's why you go back to Daniel. Daniel was a prophet. And, you know, some, some prophets, well, they, they died. They, they were killed. Daniel wasn't killed in that instance because God saw it fit that he would add his testimony and save him. And actually, um, you see the accounts and you see that it turned the people. The, the saving acts turned the people. When you go to Jesus, you see that God uh, instituted or manifested the spirit, uh, the gift of the spirit of faith to save Jesus because Jesus didn't just didn't come to die just any death. He had to die the death of the cross. Why? Well, when you go back to the old covenant, you see that a man who died on a tree was cursed of God, and he had to become cursed of God in order to effectuate the plan of redemption. If the, if the people of Nazareth had thrown him off the brow of the hill, none of us would have been saved. If the Jews had been able to stone him, none of us could be saved. Because Jesus had to go to the cross because there he could take in the sin of mankind. He wasn't doing that off the brow of a hill. He wasn't doing that being stoned. And he wasn't doing that when Herod was, was after him to kill all the kids. He had to voluntarily, willingly yield himself to the death of the cross. And that death of the cross was the gateway for the resurrection. And that's why God added his testimony to the message. He protected Jesus in those instances so Jesus could yield himself on the cross and perfect redemption. Now we come to the New Testament with the, uh, with the apostles and you see that God protected the message. He didn't allow Peter to die in prison before the message got out. And you see that there were manifestations of the gift of the Spirit where God, just like the writer of Hebrews says, added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. So that's why in this teaching, when you, when you go through and you see how God operates, you see how the gifts of the Spirit work, and you have a better understanding of how, how, of how we're supposed to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Okay, that concludes this teaching for today. And um, until next time, uh, thank you for listening.